going to invite you to take a Bible and turn with me to Matthew 25. Um, we will look at the last text this morning from the fifth major block of teaching that Matthew gives us um, in Matthew 23, 24, and 25. And so in just a moment, we'll look at verse 31 together. But um, before I preach today and before we get to the text, um, I would like to talk with you uh, just a little bit about some conversations and dreams and prayers that we've been having and invite you to pray with us and, and participate with us. Um, counting today, we have six Sundays left uh, in 2020. Uh, I'm going to miss it so much, aren't you? It's just sad to see it go. Um, but we have six Sundays left. Part of what that means is we have six Sundays left um, in, in kind of year-end giving. And I want to, first of all, say thank you for the ways that even during this time period, uh, so many of you have leaned in and helped us as a church uh, to continue to meet all of our obligations and needs. And uh, we are really in a good place. We, we always need uh, the year in to, to be uh, good, um, and we are there again. Um, but we are, we're really in a place of gratitude um, as we enter in this Thanksgiving week for all that God has done um, in the season. But one of the interesting things has been, as we have been in this time that has felt like um, a time of isolation, for many of us on staff, especially as we have thought and dreamed about what God is doing, it has felt like a time of expanded imagination in the midst of contraction of our lives. And so um, I want to think with you about kind of five concentric circles. Ashley is helping me put together a diagram that will help us visualize this. But this morning, if you would just kind of think with me about kind of an ever-expanding circle of influence. Um, that inner circle is here on this Nampa campus. We, we've been a church for 83 years right here. And uh, at the end of the service this morning, uh, don't, uh, after I pray the benediction, don't log off or don't walk away. Uh, we want to show you some of the pictures that you've been uh, sending to us about memories uh, here in this sanctuary and how much this space has meant to you. I, I've shared with you over the years, even as a college student, what this, what, and the reason we call it a sanctuary is because it is a sacred space. Um, and how often God speaks to us as we gather together in that sacred space. And so we want to share some of that. But we also, um, in talking with the board and dreaming, we do believe that 2021 is the time for us um, to dream about and to complete a, a sanctuary refresh or renewal of the space. And that, that project will likely, uh, if, if it goes according to plan, that, that will likely take place in May. We may do little bits and pieces up until that time. Uh, but about the time NNU gets out, we may be able to move over to the Brandt Center for a few weeks and, and allow the space to be changed. That's what we would like to do. Um, that's going to be expensive, and we'll, we'll show you plans and talk more about what is to come and, and what we think God wants us to do. Um, but part of that is we, we're going to, we would love to raise about $400,000 in cash to get that project really started between now and May. And the reason I'm telling you that now is because there's six weeks before the end of the year, and the Lord may lead some of you um, to say before this year, this, in, this, this year is over, um, that you may want to designate a gift to go to that project. And, and you can designate that renewal or sanctuary, we'll figure it out. Um, but I just wanted to warn you that that's coming. And, uh, and pray with us and, and encourage you. If you kind of go out from the campus out to the next circle, it's really, I, I think it's our relationship with the university. And so thankful for the opportunity that you um, give us to bless students and faculty and staff 
and to be an important influence and connector there. Um, I can't say thank you enough for the ways that you uh, give me space to be involved on campus in the lives of students, and, and I really do appreciate uh, the opportunity to get to do that, and the way that you have extended the life of this church to help prepare students for ministry. Um, but even beyond that, we have dreams about not just how, what does it mean to prepare students for ministry, but what does it mean to give them a vision for what it means to go out into the world, whether they are a full-time minister or not, and be a, a missional connection for the new creation. And so uh, we have some dreams about that. If you extend out, the next circle out would be the Treasure Valley. And as I've shared with you, this is so much fun to move somewhere and the place is exploding with growth. Um, it gives us so many dreams about what God might do through us. And so um, in talking with the district and kind of praying together um, and this opportunity we've had with Middleton and as soon as this COVID is over, we, we're excited to kind of get back into dreaming there. Um, but we kind of have a dream or aspirational goal that, that every two years we would start a new, a new creation community somewhere in the valley that would be part of us, but would be meeting a place in the valley that we can't reach from this place. And that we would be expanding, um, we would be expanding the new creation, expanding God's kingdom in that kind of way. And we're excited about what that might mean. So we got here, the campus, the Treasure Valley, and here's the, the other piece that I really want to emphasize this morning. Over these last few months, uh, as we have been online and, and connecting with folks, uh, we've realized a number of things about these online connections. The first is that, um, not just outside of here, but this has become an important way for people who are part of this local church or part of Middleton congregation who aren't able to be with us on a regular basis for some reason. This has been a way for them <laughs> to stay connected. And they have all been saying to us, please don't go away, even when this is over. <laughs> please help us be able to stay connected in these kinds of ways. Um, we've also begun to dream about ways to use these resources to create uh, places of growth and connection for folks who need that. Uh, we've been dreaming about, this is a working title, so don't quote me here, but we've been talking about things like a new creation university. Um, what would it mean for us uh, to have uh, midweek and other kinds of connecting points where people could lean in and continue to grow? And what that might mean, not just for us and for our connections and some of our other uh, congregations together, but what kind of resource might that be for smaller churches? Um, and we've realized that this has also become a place for those around the nation and in some cases around the world who currently do not have a place of connection to a body of Christ. Or people who, and I, I think I've received an email a week for the last several weeks from people who are trying to find their way back into relationship with Christ for whom this has been a first step of safety, a first step of interest, a first step of reconnecting to their faith. Um, or for some, this may be the pathway for the very first time connecting with Christ. Uh, that before they would ever even dream about darkening a church's doors, uh, that they may connect with us in this kind of way and find Christ uh, through this kind of medium. And, and I would even include a category I wrote on my notes here that is a who knows. Uh, uh, as we've been thinking about churches that do this well or exploring and researching some, uh, one of my favorite stories is there's a church uh, called Fresh Life Church in Montana that began with this dream. How do we take a million people who are scattered across this massive state and how do we try to connect certain bodies of Christ together? And, and they have found ways to do that 
in person, online, etc. But the pastor of that church got a call one day from a group of people in, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and said, hey, we just wanted you to know we were connecting with your resources. We started a house church, and it outgrew the house. And so we're renting a theater in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And is it okay if we become an extension of your church, even though we're not in Montana? Um, and uh, I have thought about what would that mean for even folks who began to gather around and maybe, um, maybe some new dreams of how home churches and other kinds of communities would develop. I don't know. Uh, but my guess is that's as we thought about that, it's probably going to add about 50000 to our budget in 2021 to be able to staff that and do that well. And again, I just want to plant that as a seed over these next six weeks because there may be some of you, uh, maybe some of you who've connected with us online recently, um, for whom that, God may lay that on your heart. And if we could do that um, and prepare for 2021, that would be amazing. And then the last kind of circle is the global reach. Um, some of the folks, thank you, who have connected with us online, you helped us fund our Thanksgiving boxes far more than we planned or expected, which was great, which meant a whole bunch of you helped extend Thanksgiving boxes around the community far with a greater reach than we expected initially. Thanks be to God, and thank you for helping us uh, bless others. But in days to come, we're gonna, we'll be talking about um, an expanded vision uh, of partnership with Southeast Asia and and how we continue to expand uh, the new creation, the kingdom of God around the world. Um, so that's enough of that. But I wanted to plant that seed in your mind. Uh, in this, t- it's, I'm excited. In this time of contraction, it is, maybe I've just sat around the house too long. Uh, but in this time of contraction, there has just been a sense of a, of a time of expanded uh, imagination and vision for us. Um, and I, I just believe God's in it. And so uh, pray with us and, and think with us about that. Let's get to the text. Uh, Matthew 25 today, beginning at verse 31. If you're with us this morning and if you're able, I'd invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's word. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Now when the human one comes in his majesty and all his angels are with him, he will sit on his majestic throne. All the nations will be gathered in front of him and he will separate them from each other just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right side, but the goats he will put on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who will receive good things from my father. Inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you before the world began. I was hungry and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothes to wear. I was sick. And you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then those who are righteous will reply to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and give you clothes to wear? When did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will reply to them, I assure you that when you have done it for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you have done it for me. Then he will say to those on his left, get away from me, you who receive terrible things. Go into the unending fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you didn't give me food to eat. I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me. I was naked and you didn't give me clothes to wear. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, 
When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't do anything to help you? Then he will answer, I assure you that when you haven't done it for one of the least of these, you haven't done it for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous ones will go into eternal life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I've shared with you before um, how interesting uh, it's been for me uh, these five years to come back uh, to this community and this place that was so important in my formation, especially during college years. And I, part of uh, my reflection on that always is high school was not good for me. Um, my family moved to Seattle in 1979, uh, right after my seventh grade year, and, uh, and my family still loves to pull out pictures of me in eighth grade. And and delight in them, um, not in any affectionate way, but in a very humorous laugh at the way Mother Nature uh, was, was really destroying me um, in those years, in the ways in which there was, uh, let's just call it awkwardness um, during those times. But coming to a, a new school um, as an eighth grader was not a good experience. Um, and I, I had an experience early in my eighth grade year that was kind of abusive. And uh, a kind of form of bullying that set a trajectory and a lens for me that I think carried through a lot of my high school years, desperately wanting to be, to fit in, but feeling mostly at the margins. But then, uh, in those years, I felt like that at school, but at church, it was a totally different story. Um, there, I was the pastor's kid, and we were part of a really growing church and a flourishing youth group, and I just always felt at home at church. Um, I think part of even... Uh, the response to a call of God in my life seemed kind of easy because the church has always been kind of home for me. Uh, and I, that was the place where if I, had, if I had successes during my adolescent years, it was at the church. It was not at the school. And there was this sense of a real connection and, and love there. Well, then I got to NNC, and it was like taking church and adding books. It was awesome, Right? I came here, and, and I just kind of fit in, and, and from the very moment I stepped onto campus, it was like, these are my people, and, you know, it was so awesome, but, and those four years were, in many ways, a kind of reverse for me of my high school years. However, coming back, it's been interesting to reconnect with people who were at the school at the same time, and some who share in that same kind of sense of experience, but some who I've met and reconnected with over the last few years, who would say they had the exact opposite experience, where they were part of a high school or experience where they were very much at home, and then they got here, and it was a whole new kind of thing, and they felt marginalized where I had felt embraced. And the reason I share that is because I think that's the lens through which we have to read this parable or this story that again is the last of four stories in a row here at the last block of teaching in Matthew before we get to the, res to the rejection and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus that concludes the Gospel of Matthew. But we've received kind of four parables or stories right in a row about the return of Christ and how um, we, cannot, we have to participate in doing justice as we await the coming of Christ. And we have to make sure that we don't get new creation fatigue, that we keep oil in our lamps and we are prepared, and that we have to take this investment of the new creation that God has given to us and not hide it, but work to ever expand it. But then we get this final kind of story that, that I think is shaped out of this idea in the Old Testament, that God has redeemed a people out of Egypt 
and a people who were slaves, a people Pharaoh didn't even care about. And now God has brought them out, but now they're entering into a promised land. They cross the Jordan, but they enter into a land that's filled with other nations, other peoples. And they are weak and vulnerable. They have had no history of it being able to build an economy. They are, they are refugees fleeing from a place of persecution. And they enter into a land, and here's the question, how will the nations in that land treat them? And in the Old Testament lens, the nations in the land are judged based upon how they receive or practice hospitality to Israel. If they see them coming in and say, oh, there's a weak people we can exploit, or here's a people who are going to overcrowd the land, we should push them out. Then that nation will be judged based on how they treated God's people, his children, Israel. Now, the fascinating thing is, as you move forward in the Old Testament, that kind of gets reversed. Because Israel, who was marginalized, and God took care of them and judged the nations that didn't welcome them, now they are a mega power, if you will. David and Solomon and the kingship, they have all of this wealth. And now there are other nations who are looking to them for help. And now here's the way the Old Testament turns it. You, Israel, had better remember who you used to be as you deal with them. So welcome the stranger in your midst. The land is not yours, it's mine, saith the Lord. So that do not forget that that's who you used to be, so do not treat, now that you are on the inside, remember how you needed help when you were on the outside and, and structure your life that way because if you do not, in the same way that God judged the nations that didn't welcome you, he will now judge you for not welcoming them. Are you with me? And so we get this fascinating story of the sheep and the goats. And part of the reason we get it here is because this is, as I mentioned earlier, this is Christ the King Sunday. And the story is about how the Son of Man comes back and is Lord over all of the nations, sits upon his throne, is Lord and King over all the nations. By the way, one of the questions we have to wrestle with in this text is how do we interpret the idea of nations? Sometimes we have read this parable as though what we're supposed to read or the story is, is we're supposed to read that the king gathers everyone. And so each person then will have to stand before the king as judge. And you will be separated as sheep from the goats based upon how you live this out. Most scholars today would argue it's not that that's a bad way of reading the text, but it probably misunderstands. If, if what this, Jesus told the story, what he meant to say is every single person is going to have to stand individually before the king to be ruled in this, or judged in this kind of sense. There's two or three other Greek words that would have made way more sense to use other than the one that's used that now gets translated nations. So that probably the right way to read the story is this, that Christ is Lord over the ethnoi, over the various nations, empires. And so one of the things that we have to recognize, one of the things I want to say this morning, and I, I'll just be very short here, is just a constant reminder on Christ the King Sunday that every nation, empire in history is penultimate, which is a fancy word that means not eternal. There is one eternal kingdom. That is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the new creation, the one over which Lord Christ is Lord. 
Every other one doesn't mean they're bad. There is a place, I would argue, even in the text and in the idea of the scripture, for nations. As I love to say, it is a good thing for children to have parents. In our case, it's been very good. Those kids really needed parents. Um, it's a good thing for, for children to have parents. It's a good thing for congregations to have pastors. Thank you. I was just, just waiting for one there. Uh, it's a good thing for universities to have administrations. It's a good thing for cities to have mayors. It's a good thing for states to have governors. It's a good thing for nations to have presidents. It's good things. When they operate as the way God wants powers to operate is a very good thing. But this text is a reminder, every nation is not eternal and stands under the judgment of Christ for how they lived out their life based upon the way that God expected powers to operate in the world. And that's why I work so hard to make sure that the practices that we participate in a congregation are a constant reminder that this is a very good nation to which we are citizens but it is not eternal, it is penultimate. We are actually citizens and our ultimate allegiance belongs to a higher kingdom. And we have to be shaped by those practices. That's enough of that. But here's the other thing. That this text reminds us that God has a very different way of judging the greatness of those nations. So I have to tell a kind of funny story from college. So when I got here, I took History of Western Civ. And I remember taking History of Western Civ, and we talked a lot about the Empire of Rome. And we talked about, in Western Civ class, how good Rome was. That Rome brought us things like aqueducts. And Rome created the kind of first initial sewer systems, which brought a whole new level of health for the community. Rome built roads. Rome shaped a political imagination that still has had impact in the way nations think about the right way for people to be governed. Like, we kept talking in Western Civ class about how good Rome was and how many great things Rome added to Western civilization. And here's the part I have to confess. For a minute, I thought my professor might be a heretic. Because I was raised in the church. I was not raised to think Rome is good. What I knew about Rome prior to Western Civ class was that Rome was just simply trying to gobble up power. And that Rome had a tendency to marginalize the Israelites. And that Rome had a tendency to persecute those who didn't fit in the system. And that ultimately it was Rome that crucified Jesus and it was Rome that destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. And it was Rome that killed the martyrs in the early church. And so it took me a little while to get over the fact that my professor wasn't a heretic and kept trying to tell me all these good things from the perspective of Western history about the Roman Empire. But it was a reminder, having been shaped in the life and imagination of the scripture in the church, and from the lens of Christ, Rome built really nice roads. 
and then Greece had a massive economy and was a superpower militarily, but failed to embody ultimately what God expects out of nations. So that the greatness of a nation in God's eyes is not their might, their strength, their wealth. It is, in this text, how they treated the least of these. Who in this text may initially mean those poor disciples of Christ who are going to find themselves in all of the world and how will the nations receive them. But in the same way that in the Old Testament it gets inverted so that when Israel is now in power, it is not, well, you can do whatever you want to to those who are on the margins. It is a, remember where you used to be. We have a tendency to say, in some ways rightly, that history is written by the victors. Some of you who participate on our Wednesday night stuff, I have shot a lot of Bible studies over the last few months in my office at home. And oftentimes we'll point out that in the, on the shelf right above my shoulder, there is just a whole series of presidential biographies. I am a kind of fixated on presidential history and biographies. As I've mentioned uh, more often than you wanted to hear, this summer, I've really spent a lot of time, especially reading um, literature that, that emerges out of the African-American community. And, and what has reminded me is the dichotomy between the shelf between, <laughs> under, above my shoulder and the shelf kind of lower down now. That if we take this story in the scripture seriously, our nation will not... The history of our nation will not be told by those who had power only. But the history of our nation will be told by Native Americans and people who were enslaved and immigrants and refugees. That history may be written by the victors, but judgment will be in the hands of the marginalized. If you don't get anything else out of this morning, you should have written that one down. History may be written by the victors, but judgment will be in the hands of the marginalized. When I was in seminary, I was in a patristics class. Actually, it was TAing. And the professor was talking about, uh, in the early church, there's a commentary on the rich man and Lazarus. Do you remember that story? Uh, and in the commentary, the, this early church writer was talking about how how we should take this text to, to mean this, that someday when we get to heaven and we stand before the pearly gates, if you will, we oftentimes imagine that because Peter's given the, the keys of the kingdom that it will be St. Peter who meets us at the gate, if you will, and most of our jokes start that way. The professor was, was pointing out how in this commentary, the writer was imagining that when you get to heaven, it is not Peter who meets you at the gate, but it is the poor man, Lazarus. And the prayer that's written in the commentary is that when this person gets to heaven, that Lazarus will know their name. Well, I was TA for this professor, so we were walking across campus. There was a woman uh, who kind of hung out on campus quite a bit who just wore old red sweats and oftentimes uh, was, was probably homeless most of the time, uh, but would often ask people for money. And we all kind of knew her. Um, she was around the campus frequently. And as this professor and I were walking across campus, she greeted the professor by name. And he reached into his pocket, gave her a dollar or two, and talked to her for just a few minutes and walked on. And I said to him, that's really cool that she knows you. He said, oh, yeah, do you remember that, 
Remember that commentary that we read in class a few days ago? He said, every once in a while I have a vision that I'll die and I'll get to heaven and there will be a woman in old red sweats at the gate. He says, and I want to make sure she knows my name. I love that and I think this is an important part. But there is a twist in the story that we can't miss. And here's the twist. When the sheep are separated and the goats are separated, they both ask the, the king, the Lord, the same question. When did we see you? Now, it's not unusual for the goats to ask that question. When did we see you? When did we see you hungry and not feed you? When did we see you naked and not clothed? When did we see you homeless and not invite you? And when did we see you in prison and not visit you? The scary part to me about the goats asking the question is this, that it means that they have lived such a life that they have failed to see the other. Like the rich man in the story, who, by the way, whose name is unknown, again, to the kingdom of God. Like the rich man in the parable who walks by Lazarus each day and knows he's there but doesn't see him, doesn't know him. The goats participate in practices that mean that they they fail to see the little ones who Christ knows and who Christ identifies as his own. I, um, I am a, I'm a little bit nervous about the ways um, that Maybe it's COVID, maybe it's the political realm, maybe it's just all sorts of fears, but I, I'm nervous about the ways that we, even as, as Christ's people within the church, are so shaped by what I'll call again a, a myth of scarcity. And we are so shaped by those fears that we're constantly now scared of whoever the other is which means now that we just sort of justify any kind of practice that might exclude whoever the other is from us. But here's the crazy thing in the text. It's not just that the goats, I, I expect the goats to be clueless. The twist in the text is when the sheep say, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you naked and clothed? When did we see you homeless and we brought you in? When did we see you in prison? And when did we do that? And the reason the question is so profound is because, if I could go against the story I just told a few minutes ago, unlike the fear that we're going to do something for those on the margins because we're a little afraid they may show up at the gate someday in the great reversal, What's so profound about the sheep is they were doing the very thing God raised up nations to do, and they didn't even know they were doing it because that was the character out of which they were living. They weren't doing it to get a reward. They weren't even doing it to, to be spared from wrath. They weren't even doing it for a cool certificate to hang on the wall. They were doing it because they had been so shaped by the life and mercy and love of God shed abroad in their hearts that it was the very way they lived. And when, when they get separated and brought into glory, they say, well, how did we get here? <laughs> what did we do? When did we see you? In 
For that's really the invitation of the text. It's not to be nice to those on the margins because we're, we're fearful they may judge us someday. But because we have been so loved by God that when we see the other who believes they are not worthy of that love, we will do everything in our being to let them know that God knows them and loves them because God has loved us. It's because we are so sure that as we pray every single week that our daily bread will be taken care of, not, not our wish list, but our daily bread will be taken care of. And we are so secure in a God who sings the liturgy of abundance that then we can extend our bread to others because this is not a zero-sum game where if they have it, then we don't. But we have been so shaped by the abundance of God's grace and mercy and love that it overflows from our lives. And the text invites us to be so at home in God that having other people find their home in our midst is not a threat to our way of living, but it is a cause for celebration because we once did not have a home. And God brought us in. And those are the kind of people people who know how to love those who are too often unseen in our world, not because they're afraid of them or even afraid of hell, (laughs) but because they are loved and they know they've been cared for and they have a home in God, that they can say, "When, when did we see that? It was just who we had become. And those are the kind of people, (laughs) that's the kind of person I want to be. Because those are the kind of people who know what it means to call Christ king. Who know how to call Christ king. And they are the kind of people who Christ calls his children. Almighty God, help us today. Um, We thank you for your patience with us. Oh, man. We thank you for the way you love us and supply our daily bread and help us to be secure in you. For we need those things. Um, We, some of us in this room, could testify about how your love changed us. About how we were in need and and you, you supplied about how we had nowhere to call home and no people to call our own, and you brought us in and made us family. May that love, may that gratitude, especially in a week like this where we give thanks for so much that you have 
that you are doing in our lives? Where even in the oddness of this week, we still are so thankful for home. May we heed the warning of this text, but far beyond heeding the warning of this text, that, that although the victors may get the right history, it is the marginalized who will hold judgment. May the true motivation of our, of our lives spring not from fear, even of judgment, but from the reality of your love, the goodness of your grace, the fact that we belong to you. We recognize there are so many people in our world today, in all sorts of places, who do not know how much they are loved, who do not, who have so many needs that need to be met, and who are longing for a place to call home. At the very least, oh God, help us to see them. Have mercy on our goatish eyes. Help us to see them. But more than that, May we be an instrument through which your love and through which your, your daily bread and through which your inclusion, may we be instruments th through whom that flows. Sanctify us. <laughs> Make us a holy people. For we are the sheep of your pasture and you are our shepherd and our king. And God's people said, amen, amen.